You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. The Apostle Paul continues to this church in the port city of Ephesus. He continues to write, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called this uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new plan in the man in the place of two. So making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. With all the division in the world today, a lot of people are asking the question, what does it look like to be united? What does it mean to be one? How are we to live committed lives to one another? You see, these these past few weeks, we've been exploring our union, our commitment to Christ, and even more so, his commitment to us. We saw this was the plan of God the Father, and it was purchased through God the Son. And now we, the church, are empowered by God the Spirit. This is all laid out in chapter 1. And in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, this is not of your own doing, You couldn't earn your union with God. You could not work for your union with God. It's all but grace. It's a free gift to you offered at Jesus' life. All of this is yours, church. All because of Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, in him, it appears almost two dozen times in these initial chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul wants to see that our union with God doesn't end with God. It begins with God, but does not end with God. You've heard us say, what is true of Jesus is true of us. Remember that phrase? And what belongs to Jesus belongs to us. And we've been very careful with our words. 
We didn't say it belongs to you, individual Christian. We said us, plural, the people of God. See, for the Apostle Paul, especially in this section, unity with God means unity with God's church. Unity is not something that is extracurricular for Christians. It's not an extra course that you add on in the study of who God is and who we are. Being united with Jesus means being united with his bride. And this is what we're going to see today, this morning. That if you're going to check out right now and not listen anymore because you can't handle another sermon on diversity and unity... Just take this with you. Union with Christ means unity with Jesus' church. Paul will have it no other way. Paul will show them and us, by extension, this reality. He'll call us to first remember who we were without Christ. That's our first point. And second, he wants us to remember who we are now with Christ. Remember who you were without Christ and now with Christ. You all with me this morning? We ready to dive in? First point. Remember who we were without Christ. Paul says, therefore, in light of everything I just told you, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You Gentiles, verse 11. Paul uses this term in the original language that might sound familiar to you, ethnos. It's where we get the beautiful terminology of ethnicity. Ethnos is translated Gentiles, but could also be translated all other nations but Israel. The Jews and the Gentiles are both equally guilty of hurling derogatory names at one another. And Paul, who is a Jew, is reminding them of these derogatory names when those who were circumcised, the Jews, would call the Gentiles uncircumcision. Now, if you remember, King David in the Old Testament hurled this insult at a giant named Goliath. Look with me back in 1 Samuel 17.6. He says, just who is this, can you say it with me, uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, if you were a Gentile, the the English translation is a little bit more tame, because what they're really saying is you foreskins. You foreskinned Philistine. Why? Because those who are not Israel still had the foreskin on the male genitalia. But those who were part of the people of Israel had that removed. Now, if you're a Jew, 
And a Gentile, how did you know whether you had that removed or not? Did they have a checkpoint at the city gates? I don't know. Don't know how they figured all this stuff out. What we do know is that sign, the mark of circumcision, was a mark of a covenant from the Old Testament. It represented that you are part of God's nation, part of God's people. And this sign came after a covenant ceremony that God made with Abram, a covenant that was shed by blood, the killing of an innocent animal. As they walk between this animal, they are saying, if this covenant is broken, then may what happened to this animal happen to one of us. God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 17 about this. And as for you, you shall keep my covenant that he just previously made with him. And you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This was the sign of the old covenant. But what was Abraham to be now as a part of this covenant? You know what Abraham means? A father to the ethnos, the nations. A blessing to the nations. All nations were to be blessed through all of Abraham's descendants. Look what we read a little bit earlier as they're making this covenant. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. It doesn't say only the Israelites will be blessed through you. It doesn't say some nations will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth, from the beginning, God was a God of the nations. And the nation of Israel was chosen not because they were large, not because they were faithful, not because they were strong. They were chosen to be a blessing to all nations, to be a light, Isaiah tells us, to the nations. But Israel failed at this. And it wasn't just Israel. But the nations wanted nothing to do with Israel and her God. This wasn't a problem in Israel. It was a problem with the Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is that there are some things in Scripture we are commanded to forget about. But there's some things in Scripture we are commanded to remember. He says, remember you are a double alienated people. That's what he says in verse 11 and 12. Alienated from the people of God and alienated from God and his Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah King. I don't know how many Jewish folks we have in here, but I would say the vast majority of us, this is us. We are the ethnos, the Gentiles a double, alienated people. We once were strangers to the promise that God gave his chosen nation. 
We were once alienated from the commonwealth of his people. Verse 12. Paul wants you to ask yourself this question. Do you remember who you once were without Jesus? Do you remember what was promised to you when you were without Christ? Do you know what was promised to the commonwealth of Israel? That God would be their God and they would be his people forever. Do you know what's promised to us when we are not a part of that covenant? That we will not be with God and he will not be with us forever. Paul says, at one time, you were Christless. You were communityless. You were hopeless. You were godless. Now, why would Paul want us to know this and remember this? It's not to pour more salt into the shame that we already experience. It's not to heap more condemnation on the guilt we already experience. And it's not to show us how great our sin is. It's to show us that the person in front of you right now, that the person behind you right now, the person to the right of you, to the left of you right now, Renaissance Church, is that while we all have different personal stories, we all have one commonality that unifies our story, that at what time none of us chose God. At one time, none of us had hope. It's so sad to think about at one time, none of us had each other. What Paul is summing up here in verse 11 and 12, he already did so in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2. In these short two verses, he's summing up three whole chapters of his letter to the Romans. And how does he sum up up, sum it all up at the end of chapter 3 of Romans, he reminds us of who we all once were. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. Why does he want us to remember this? It's because when we forget this, we pridefully believe that God's love was something that we achieved instead of received. When we forget this, we pridefully name ourselves as righteous and put ourselves up on a pedestal while we damn others and put them down on a lower pedestal. See, forgetfulness about our previous condition is dangerous because it shapes how we wrongfully view ourselves and wrongfully view others. You with me? But if we all have fallen short, if we are all atheistic, what Paul says in the original language here, atheos, we were all without God, against God, 
It unifies us in the gratefulness, not the gratefulness, the greatness of our sinfulness and humbles us, but it does something even more. It shows off the grandeur of God's grace in our life that produces peace, that produces unity. That's why it says, remember, remember who you were apart from Christ. Christless, communityless, hopeless, godless, but he doesn't stop there, praise God. <laughs> he says, point two, remember who we are now with Christ. Follow along with this good news. But now, he says in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Like a good curator in an art museum, Paul is setting up an experience for us here. He has one portrait that has displayed our previous reality without Christ. And now he's bringing us into this great hall with thousands of masterpieces, of paintings of God's workmanship in Christ Jesus to show off. He was showing us the ugliness of our past, and now he's showing us the glories of our present reality and future reality. But I'm afraid a lot of us don't grasp this because we didn't see the division back in the day. But look what historian Barclay writes. He says, until Christ came, Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with Gentile was the equivalent of death. Are you hearing how scandalous this is, what Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile church? He says, and now... And now, you who are alienated, you who are strangers to God, by the blood of Jesus, there is no ethnic division within the people of God. Where there was once two groups, Jews and Gentiles, Christ has made one new man. And he did this, verse 14, by destroying the wall of hostility in his flesh. Now, what is this dividing wall of hostility that he's talking about? Is it a literal wall or is it a metaphorical wall? And I think Paul knows that it's, it's both. It is both literal and metaphorical. This wall of hostility, it represented the ceremonial laws that Israel followed. These ceremonial laws almost served as like this individual 
wall that was set up between Jews and Gentiles that if someone did not follow, they could not come and be a part of the people of God. It's not only that these walls, this metaphorical wall existed, it's that the nations did not want to participate in these ceremonies, in these customs. But when Christ came, he abolished those customs. And you might say, Rob, we just preached through the Sermon on the Mount. I thought Christ came not to abolish the law, y'all remember that? But to do what? Fulfill it. And this is where we have to understand the distinction between a moral law and a ceremonial law. Christ did not come to abolish the moral laws. What's a moral law? It'd be like loving your neighbor, not murdering someone else. But a ceremonial law would be like dietary laws and circumcision. He not only fulfilled all the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, but he abolished those ceremonial laws. Why? So the nations could be brought in. You can see Romans 7, 1 through 6, and Galatians 3, 25. What those ceremonial laws did was said, because you do not look like us, eat like us, or act like us, you will never be one of us. And what were they boasting in? That which was made by hands in the flesh, verse 11. And now Paul says, have been abolished in what? Christ's flesh, verse 14. What counts for the flesh is nothing, but what Christ wants is a pure heart, not just outward obedience. But this wall was also a literal wall of hostility. You ought to know you're going to get your history lesson in Old Testament today, did you? See, Herod the Great, when he rebuilt the second temple, there was a man-made wall that separated Gentiles who believed in the Jewish God and Jews who believed in their God. And not only was there a wall, their platform was 14 steps lower than the Israelites. They were cut off by this wall of hostility. And historians have found engravings from that wall that says, if you trespass, Gentile, you will be executed. Can you imagine this visible symbol cutting off the nations from the God of the nations? the God who wanted to bless the nations. I would imagine it'd feel similar to those in Berlin when the Berlin Wall went up between them and Germany. I would imagine it'd feel the same way during the U.S.'s civil rights conflicts where signs were posted, whites only. We're segregated and separated because of our ethnicity. And it might seem like God actually commanded this. But there is zero evidence in the Old Testament that this wall was ever commanded. 
This was a man-made, and dare I say, anti-God, anti-Christ, demonic wall of division. Why? It's because Israel forgot her vocation was to be a blessing to the nations, and intend she turned it into favoritism for Jews, while despising, even detesting all other nations as dogs. See, Paul doesn't just want us to remember our sin and how it's made a mess of everything between us and God, but he wants us to see how the gospel reconciles enemies, not just to God, but to one another. He reconciles enemies and makes them friends. He makes those who are at war with one another to now have peace, not just with God, but with each other. See, God just doesn't put an end towards our hostility towards himself. In Christ's flesh, he puts an end of our hostility towards one another. What Paul is saying is God's grace puts an end to every form of racism, division, ethnic superiority, tribalism, and nationalism within Jesus' church. All of them are broken down because Christ bled. I mean, just as we see that Jesus cannot be unhitched from the Old Testament law and prophets, he's come to fulfill them, not abolish them, Christians cannot be unhitched from the diversity celebrated within the church. Union with Jesus, if you say you are a Christian, means union with Jesus' global church. On one level, it, it means that there is no such thing as an autonomous Christian. You would never find a Christian who says, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. They'd be like coming up to me and saying, Rob, I like you, but I hate your wife. It'd be as absurd, as absurd as a hand being severed from the arm and walking along on its own. We talk about this in our membership workshop. You ever watch The Addams Family? Ba-da-da-da. Thing, the character, is absurd. A hand cannot operate absent of the body. The language autonomous Christian just doesn't work. You know what that means? Auto means self. Namas means governed or laud. You won't find a Christian described as self-governed anywhere in the New Testament. Loving Jesus means uniting with Jesus' people. Regardless regardless of how different they are than you. See, the gospel for Paul and for this church isn't just something to be believed. It's something to be lived. We don't need anything else more than the gospel. We just need more of the gospel in our lives. We don't just need the conviction and belief of what the gospel is. We want to have a culture of what this gospel portrays to a watching world. Two groups who previously hated each other 
Paul says, they're now one brand new man in Christ Jesus because I've killed their hostility. This is not woke theology. This is not black liberation theology. This is Christ and his church. Which means that if we say Christ is king, it means that political tribalism has no place within this church. For we worship one king who is the bloodied lamb of God. And his name's Jesus. This means that in this church, nationalism has no place for Christ bled to reconcile all nations to himself. It means that in this church, racism and ethnic superiority have no place, for we will never rebuild walls that Jesus has already broken down in his flesh when he bled for us. Isaac Adams writes this when it comes to this racial conflict that we see in Ephesus and that we've seen in the history of the world. When it comes to racial strife between Christians, union with one another isn't affected, but our communion, our fellowship, is. You can't destroy what the Spirit has already united, but you can despise that you aren't united. We already have union, but when we build these walls, it's our relationships that are affected. It's our unity that's affected. And sadly, I've heard many Christians say that I have more in common with these non-believers than I do with believers. But what Paul is saying Regardless of what your commonality is with those other non-believers, whether it's political preferences, pandemic persuasions, careers, finances, ethnicity, regardless of what those commonalities are, the gospel runs deeper and further because those are temporary. The gospel is forever. Are you with me? It means right now that you have more union with a Christian that sits on the other side of the political aisle than you do with someone who doesn't know Jesus, who sits on the same side of the political aisle with you. Can I get an amen? So I just wonder, my brothers, my sisters, where are you putting up walls within this church that Christ has broken down? Where are you recreating brand new ceremonial laws in order for folks to dwell with you, be with you, and you be with them? Here's the reality. Most of the time, we want people using my language very carefully, we, because it's not me up here on a pedestal 
having this all figured out, and you down there needing to catch up to me, we want people to be united with a little g God after our own image, rather than being united with the God in whose image we are made. What we do is we, we conflate uniformity with unity. We've said this before, right? We want uniformity within the church to our preferences, our persuasions, rather than unity in the church, in Christ, that transcends all of our persuasions and preferences. Listen to me. Preferences aren't bad but they become evil and demonic when they take priority and supremacy over and above Christ. We don't want sameness at Renaissance Church because Christ did not want sameness in his church. We want unity in Christ that breeds diversity, not division. Are you with me? Because Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, we're a variety of folks. I mean, aren't we? With a variety of giftings and stories and languages, ethnicities. I mean, I'm a Mediterranean mutt. But we're all built upon the same eternal son filled with the eternal spirit that will outlast all of our temporary preferences and persuasions. Almost two decades ago, I got to travel to West Africa, and we got to go there, share the gospel, train up leaders, and build clean water wells. Now, in West Africa, and this country I was in, is in Liberia, and in the, the, the past I don't know, half century, it's been filled with uh, civil war and conflict amongst the nations. And while there, they had a, I was there, they had a brief reprieve from this civil war. And as we would go into their Sunday gatherings, you know, from my vantage point, it seemed like everybody was exactly the same, right? Dark skin, similar style clothes, same language. But in all reality, the, the church that was gathering there was radically different from one another. Do you want to know why? It's because the Christians who were now gathering in that church once fought on opposite sides of the conflict. In fact, I was sitting in the back uh, with a pastor, and as the songs were being sung, he pointed to two men that were sitting up front. He said, those two men fought on opposite sides of the Civil War. But now, because of their faith in Christ, you can't separate them. You won't just find them together here. You'll find them walking together, talking together, feasting together, living together. What would make two enemies 
whose goal it was not just to kill each other, but kill one another's family members and neighbors, now a brand new family in Christ. I'll tell you what, it's first by remembering that their enmity with, between one another paled in comparison to their unified enmity and hostility towards an eternal God. But it's also because they remembered their true and better condition. That while they were at eternal war with a holy God, that holy God who is so separate and other than us did not keep a wall or a chasm between us, but he stepped down into humanity and didn't declare war on us, but offered peace. When you know that peace that you have with God that is not just this fuzzy feeling that you experience when you sing songs. But it's anti-war. You're not at war with God anymore. At war with someone who's so completely other and holy than you. How can, can you stay divided with someone else? This is why Paul ends this section with, and he, that is Jesus, verse 17, came and preached, say it with me, peace to you who are far off, and what? Peace to those who are near. For through him we both, Jew, Gentile, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you know what Paul is saying here? It just wasn't those who were far off outside the city gates that Christ came and preached peace to, the Gentiles, and who needed peace. He's saying those who were near needed peace as well because outward conformity to ceremonial law does not save somebody. See, even those who are inside the dividing wall of hostility, who followed all the customs, needed peace peace preached to them. Even those who were inside the priestly courts needed peace preached to them. And even those who were in the holies of holies, the great high priest, only one person is allowed to enter the holy holies one time of year. You see, the closer you get to the center of Israel's temple, the more restrictive it was and the lack of access you had. But in Christ Jesus, he is now our great high priest who intercedes for us while we were still sinners. But he's not just our great high priest. He is the prince of peace who has not come to declare war on his enemies, but to bring peace so he can call us friends. See, Christ Jesus, in the final hours of his life, he wasn't found where the holy of holies should be found. He wasn't inside the temple, nor inside the temple walls, nor inside even the city gates. No, he was crucified and killed where enemies of the kingdom and enemies of the state are found, outside the walls. He was crucified outside the walls. The prince of peace, got what the children of wrath deserve, me and you. He got wrath so we could be 
one with God. He got crucified outside the city walls so that we can be welcomed in. And on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. Because he's fulfilled all the moral laws, fulfilled all the civil laws, fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. And at that point, the curtain to the holies of holies, the most holy place in the temple, was torn into saying there is now no more restrictions for you to come to God. There is now no more laws that you have to follow in order to get to God because I've swung open the gates and you now have full access to God. Why? Because I took the punishment of war on myself so that you, who were far off, could have peace with my Father. He has eradicated, erased all barriers to God. You don't have to chisel your way through a wall. You don't have to climb over the wall. The gates are open. And the invitation is for all of us to come as one new man in Christ Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. We know that language, right? There's neither slave nor free. There is nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is unity with diversity. Distinctions remain. Do you see that? But divisions are erased. Now, because we are all one in Christ Jesus, we get to be, Ephesians 5, he'll tell us later, imitators of Christ. Just as Jesus went and preached peace to those inside the temple, outside the temple, we preach peace to those inside the church family. And we welcome brand new folks outside the church family in. Christ came. He welcomed those who seemed near by their customs, dined with religious leaders and Pharisees. But he also dined with Samaritans and prostitutes. Now we get to do the same. We who are all baptized into Christ Jesus now have one Father, one Spirit. And where do we go make disciples of? Just to one nation? All nations, all ethnos, who we once were, far off, been brought near. And after Jesus rose victoriously over the grave, leaving your pride in the grave, leaving your ethnic superiority in the grave, leaving your preferences in the grave. You know what words he met his failed disciples with, like me and you? First words out of his mouth were, peace to you. Regardless of where you feel like you stand this morning on how you're living out this unity, Christ himself speaks peace to you. And when you know you have that peace with Christ, you can't help but show it to others who are in Christ. Amen? Oh, let us never forget who we once were apart from Christ. 
so that it might humble us and unify our stories in the past. But just like we've been saying, every one look we take at our past, let us take 10 looks at our Savior now. Let's take 10 looks at the unity that we have even amidst our diversity. Let us never forget that Christ broke down these walls so that we no longer have walls that we build up here. We don't greet one another with walls, but we greet one another with the welcome of Christ. For as Christ has welcomed us, we welcome each other.